My name is Carlos Del Rio, and I'm currently the president of the Infectious Society of America. Today, I have the pleasure of having with us Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of National Institute of Allergy, Immunology, and Infectious Disease. It is impossible to encapsulate in this brief time we have here the indelible mark that Dr. Fauci has made on the field of infectious disease. For nearly 40 years as director of NAID, Dr. Fauci has grown the relevance and budget of the Institute, has led scientific discoveries from AIDS to Zika, and has been a beacon of scientific truth and a steady advisor to seven U.S. presidents. Dr. Fauci makes the seemingly inexplicable understandable and never shies away from telling the hard truth that leaders need to hear. For his remarkable work, Dr. Fauci has been recognized with awards ranging from Alaska Award, the IDSA Alexander Fleming Award, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It is my pleasure to have Dr. Fauci join me today for this Let's Talk ID podcast. Tony, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today and want to begin our conversation by asking you, as you step down from your role as director of NAID after 38 years, what are you most proud of and what kinds of things you wish you had accomplished? Well, Carlos, I mean, since I've had the, the privilege of wearing multiple hats over that period of time and the activities of those individual hats differ somewhat, if you look at it, for example, as a scientist in addressing, for the most part, things like the pathogenic mechanisms of HIV. I feel proud of that, of having accomplished a better understanding of the pathogenic mechanisms of HIV. As the director of NIAID, I'm particularly proud of what we did in the area of HIV AIDS when we established a separate program for AIDS. And over the period of 41 plus years, together with industry, We've played a major role in the development of a large array of antiretroviral drugs, which as we all know now in combinations that can be given as a single pill, has transformed the lives of persons with HIV and has resulted in saving of literally millions of lives in the United States and throughout the world. That I feel very good about. And then in my role in policy and the the bridge and the connection between science and policy, I've had the privilege of being asked and the honor of being asked by President George W. Bush to be one of the major architects of the PEPFAR program, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which has led, as we all know now, to saving literally anywhere between 20 and 25 million lives. And most recently, the Institute through our Vaccine Research Center, has played a major role in collaboration with industry in developing the successful vaccines that have now saved literally millions of lives worldwide from COVID. So again, I feel it a privilege of having had the opportunity to participate in each of those accomplishments, which, as you might imagine, makes one feel good about what we've done and Although it has been a lot of people involved, a lot has been accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I particularly like about how you think about things is you're a, you're a scientist, you are looking at, you're still at the bedside, you have a laboratory, but you also take that into policy and take that into public health. And I think you'll really cover the entire spectrum from, you know, from bench to, to bedside to really public health, which very few people are able to do in the way you have been able to accomplish that. Over the years, you know, whether it's HIV, whether it's Ebola, you still are seeing patients. You're still there in the Institute, you know, 
at the front lines looking at, at patient care. So you're the clinician, you're the scientist, you're the public public health person. Why do you still like to do all those things? How, what pleasure do you get out of each one of them? Well, they're all connected, Carlos. Uh, you know, when people ask me appropriate questions like, what do I consider as my primary identity? And my primary identity is as a physician. And everything stems, in my mind, out of clinical medicine. The individual that you care for, the group of individuals that you might help by doing a clinical trial, which establishes a standard of treatment, be it for HIV or COVID or what have you. And I just find that those are interconnected and they complement each other and synergize with each other. So what I learn making rounds with patients really stimulates my thought process about what's necessary to be done, what's the priority that we need to push for. An understanding of the science allows you to guide the scientific agenda better, and appreciation of all of that helps you in public health decisions. So they are really quite connected, Carlos. You can't separate them in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that really the field of infectious disease presents the opportunity uniquely, right? Because you can even then take it all the way to global health like you did with PEPFAR or many other problems. Right. So COVID has really been a remarkable and relentless pandemic. I think all of us would have not predicted back in January of 2020 how many lives would be lost and and that we will still be, you know, dealing with this virus uh, now almost uh, three years, four years later. Despite all the issues and all the problems, what what things do you think we as a community of infectious disease physicians did correctly? Well, what we did correctly was certainly the science. We had been involved as a community in preparing for pandemics and making investments in basic and clinical research. Uh, it goes from the fundamental molecular structure of an mRNA to the structure-based vaccine design of the stabilized prefusion spike protein that became the highly successful immunogen to the clinical trials network that you recall, Carlos, we set up decades ago for HIV. All of those things really made a very important positive impact on how we were able to respond to COVID, particularly in the development of successful, highly effective and safe vaccines, as well as therapeutic approaches. So that can't be said as emphatically for the public health infrastructure, which we thought was sufficient to address what we were going to be able to face with COVID. But it turns out that wasn't the case. The lesson I learned from this is continue to make the investments in basic and clinical research, but try and strengthen particularly the local public health infrastructure which we have let really, in many respects, weaken over decades. I hope that's a lesson that we will learn and remember. I still remember when we had one of the, not this one, but the prior competition of the HIV clinical trials units. You know, you mentioned, you said, I want this units to be sort of multi-purpose, to be there not only to do HIV, but to be able to do other things. And little did we know what important role through the COVPN and other other, uh, approaches the HIV clinical trials units would play in developing vaccines and developing therapeutics and really responding to COVID. So I think, you know, that was a visionary approach and I think has allowed, I mean, allowed us to have a clinical trials infrastructure ready to go as soon as the 
the vaccines or other you know therapeutics were available. So that's that's clearly one of the things that I have enjoyed the most. One of the things that that has been to me also for you, I think, an incredible challenge is the proliferation of misinformation, disinformation. What do you think can we do as ID professionals in our communities and in addressing this problem that many of us feel overwhelmed by? It's a real problem. In fact, maybe one of the most important problems we're facing. I mean, misinformation and disinformation in and of itself is bad. When you compound that with the divisiveness in our country, which is unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this, at least in the more than half a century that I've been involved here at the NIH. And then you have the social media, which facilitates the spread and the dissemination of misinformation and disinformation. What we as a community in the arena of infectious diseases, since right now we're dealing with a really transforming infectious disease with COVID, that we've got to be out there very energetically spreading true science-based, data-based, and evidence-based information. Because it appears that those who are spreading misinformation and disinformation are doing it in a much more aggressive way than those of us who have other things to do with ourselves. It's almost like we're being outgunned, Carlos. (laughs) We have a lot of people out there who do nothing but spread misinformation and disinformation. And we've got to galvanize our troops, as it were, to be out there being very public about discussing data, evidence, and science, and not let the conspiracy theories and the frank distortion of reality go unchecked. It's so hard also because, as, as you well know, you know, science evolves. So what we know today may be not necessarily what we learn tomorrow and what the truth in a way kind of changes as we advance science. And that's really hard for people to, to understand. I mean, I don't know how many times you have heard and I have heard, well, you told us this and now you're telling us something different. And it's, it's hard to tell people, well, that's because the science has changed. The the virus has changed. We, we, we learn more things. And so, so it's almost like we need to be talking continuously, as you say, and daily and say, this is what right. we know today. And this is what we don't know yet. Right. Exactly. And I think if we can improve as a society, science literacy, I don't mean making everybody a scientist, but get people to understand the concept, as you say correctly, Carlos, what science is, it's fundamentally self-correcting. I mean, you, you study something, you write a paper, you make a recommendation, and then something else happens and evolves. You study it and you say, you know, for the most part, we were right, but this has changed a bit. And we've got to get people to understand that's not flip-flopping. That is sticking with the science. It's directly opposite from flip-flopping. It's going with the evidence as it evolves. That is what science is. And it's very difficult, as you mentioned, and I totally agree, for, to get the general public to fully understand that. And we, that's why we've got to continually be out there and explaining the evolution of data, particularly when you're dealing with a moving target like an evolving outbreak. It's been really a, a lesson that I think all of us in infectious disease continue to learn. I, I wish that we continue educating society, as you say, about the importance of, of understanding this, because... In no other field that I can think of, science evolves so quickly and you learn so many things so quickly. And therefore, 
things are, you know, continuously shifting and continuously advancing. And that may seem, as you say, a flip-flopping when really what it is, it's just how we build the prior discoveries. Right. So we're, we're at a point right now, you know, we're, we're seeing an increase in case of COVID. We're seeing increases in influenza in RSV. How do we communicate to the public the importance of not letting the guard down? Uh, how do we continue em- emphasizing, you know, the importance of boosters, the importance of, of masking when necessary? Uh, what are your thoughts about how do we describe this? At some point in time, we said the pandemic is, is over, but I've heard you say we're entering a new phase. How do we how do we do that? And how do we communicate that? Well, we try to be consistent, Carlos, as a community of infectious disease individuals and as a broad community in general. We've got to be realistic and honest with the public, which we are. For example, there's there's a tremendous need and desire to get this over with, get it behind us. Everybody's exhausted. The general public is exhausted. Our healthcare providers, who are the heroes and heroines of all of this, are exhausted. But we've got to make sure people understand that it is a challenge that's still there. We can't wish it away. So when you say, how do we deal with it? We've got to tell them that there is an end to this. It is not going to be like this indefinitely. But you're right. It is now December of 2022. We are entering into the much colder weeks and months of the deep winter, which will be coming soon. With the holiday season coming up, we are going to get increase in infections. What do we do about that? We utilize the tools that we have available to us to mitigate against that. And we have terrific tools. We have vaccines and boosters that are updated. We have good antivirals. We have a a very, very profound underutilization of Paxlovid. There appears to be a reticence on the part of many physicians to prescribe it when we should not hold back when it is appropriate to prescribe that drug. And the same thing goes with flu. We have a very sharp incline. If you look at flu view on the CDC website, it's an almost vertical line going up with flu. But we have a good flu vaccine that's matched well to the circulating H3N2, which is the dominant flu strain that's circulating. So there's a lot we can do, Carlos. We just need to keep pushing the envelope and getting people to appreciate that we need to implement those interventions. It's frustrating to know that we have tools and we're not using them. And I think the the use of of antivirals in COVID has been something that has frustrated many of us. And the society has been very involved in trying to make, you know, trying to explain how these drugs are are useful and how these drugs are well tolerated and how these drugs really can make a difference in, in patients. And we have to continue to do that as much as we can. So you and I talked about, you know, you saw recently the infectious disease subspecialty match that just came out uh, was clearly disappointing for many of us. What are your suggestions of what IDSA and each one of us as ID physicians should do to attract more people into the field of infectious disease? And what advice would you have for for young people that are starting their careers as ID researchers? Well, I just, to explain to them how exciting this field is, I mean, it's such a dynamic field. If you look at society in general, what is dominating us right now? It's infectious disease. It's COVID. It's RSV. It's flu. A little bit ago, it was monkeypox that we are thankfully getting our arms around better. It's Ebola in Africa. It's a lot of 
activity that can be very fulfilling if you get involved in addressing that. I just read something this morning that came out from the IDSA, Carlos, when you were talking about the concern about the poor match, the 56% match compared to a 90% match with some other subspecialties. We need you know, to make sure we get payments for infectious disease consultation commensurate with the importance of what that is. I think we're completely underpaid population, for sure. I mean, our specialty is really not getting the due recognition that it needs, and hopefully we can do something about that. Those are priorities for us, for the society, and certainly are my priorities for this year, is to really try to turn some of those things around, you know, working on, on as you say, compensation, but also working on on excitement about the field of infectious disease and the attraction that, that many of us have had over the years, whether it was because of the science or because of the impact in society, yeah. the advocacy, working global health. I mean, there's so many different areas that we can all, all talk about. At the last uh, meeting of, the, of IDSA a few, few months ago, uh, the society, the board of directors, approved the creation of a new society of board that will be presented for the first time uh, next year. And this new award is the Anthony Fauci Award. And it will be given to an IDSA member that exemplifies the values and attributes that Dr. Fauci has exhibited throughout his career. Courage and leadership in speaking scientific truth, perseverance in the face of opposition, and serving as a change agent for health and patients around the world. So we are we're really thrilled that IDSA, the IDSA board, agreed to have this award, Tony, because you've had an incredible impact in the field of infectious disease. And it's really appropriate for the society to recognize you and to make this award in perpetuity in your honor. So I'm really happy that, that this happened. I want to thank you for your time today. And I want to personally thank you for your friendship, your mentorship, your support over the years. As president of IDSA and on behalf of the society, we thank you for your service to the field and we thank you to the service to the nation. I think you have uh, really been your chief infectious disease physician, not only nationally, but globally. And, you know, you have excited many of us to, to be in infectious disease and to think about infectious disease. So thanks for all you've done for us. Thanks for all you've done for the society over the years. I know that you're stepping down as director of the Institute, but you will continue working in science. You will be continue working in policy and many other areas. So we're excited to see what the next phase of your career is, Tony. <laughs> Thank you very much, Carlos. It's really a great pleasure working with you as it has been for so many years. And it's not over for me, as you said. I'll be certainly interacting with you and with the society in the years to come. I look forward to that. Me too. Thank you so much. Have Thank a good you. day. You too, Carlos. Thank you very much.